Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Carol Marius Axum, head coach of the U19 Odds Ball Club in Norway. He has also recently conducted a PhD in visual perception and elite football. Carol, a big warm welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Connor. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to the talk. Um, Carol, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Yeah, I, I had I had to think about that because I got your question from you uh, earlier today and uh, or yesterday, and I had to think about that. But I think it is uh, Norway in the nineteen ninety eight World Cup uh, against Brazil in France. Uh, we won two one in the last uh, group game, and uh, I remember sitting on a couch on a couch with my grandfather and just jumping. Both were jumping. Uh, it was uh, it was crazy to have a uh, Norway competing and beating the very best team in the world in the World Cup. Um, so I think that's the first, uh, and then personally, just juggling with the ball, just uh, hours and hours, just standing on a grass pitch or artificial grass pitch and just juggling with the ball, trying to break my new record um, when I was eight, nine years old. You know, that's the first uh, clear memories I have. Absolutely fascinating. And then, I mean, that sense of nostalgia, it's just running through. I can feel it now. But um, I mean, speaking of senses, I mean, perception in life is everything. So, <laughs> I mean, where on earth did the fascination to learn about perception come into play for you? Uh, I think uh, when I was growing up, playing with different co- coaches, just just parent coaches, not formal educated coaches, we never we never talked about scanning. We never talked about. Maybe we talked about looking over your shoulder, uh, very seldomly, um, but. We never talked about it, and I became an okay striker. Uh, so played in second division in Norway, but then I tried becoming a central midfielder, and I had no chance because the football was moving way too fast. I was pressured from all angles, and I really didn't have any answer in those situations. And then it became very clear to me when I was studying at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences, doing my bachelor's degree. Uh, Guy Jure, who became my supervisor, came in and had some talks where he had, in years and years, studied the best players in the world uh, on their scanning or yeah, looking around or visual perception. You can call it many names. And it, it fascinated me because that's the thing I was lacking to reach the next level for sure. I didn't have any scanning ability. I did not perceive my environment in the correct way to make fast and correct decisions so uh, I think that's fascinated me uh, the most that I was very bad at that myself when I was playing and now I feel like it's my not goal in life but it's very important to me to make my players the best in the world at this because now I have the knowledge to do that and I suppose that fascination with scanning did it preempt the end of your playing career and expedited your journey into coaching I think I, I think I stopped playing around this period when I was studying uh, too many injuries and then, but but when I just started playing again with uh, on the university with the older guys uh, like uh, just for fun I, I started doing this and I just felt like okay now I can play in tight areas I didn't do this when I was in top shape and 19 years old but now I can actually do it so um, 
yeah, it fascinated me and I did it myself and I, I just I just learned how important it is. And for me, the future of football, we know it's going faster and faster. This becomes so important. And I suppose before we continue, how would you define scanning, Carol? Uh, we defined it uh, as every time you look away from the ball to gather information from opponents, teammates, or space, or even the referee that is important for the subsequent development of play. So if you just turn your head to, to look at your misses up, uh, up on the stands, it's not a scan, but every time you look away from the ball. So it always starts with looking at the ball we only count scans when you look away from the ball because the ball is what you're looking for. We know that from research, from my research, that over 90% of fixations, eye fixations on the football pitch is on the ball, over 90%. So the ball is everything. It's the ultimate attractor. So it's, uh, yeah, so we always start with the ball and then we look away and then we count the scan. So there's a few different components you just spoke about there. So it's about what you're looking at away from the ball. It's how long you're looking at something. And it's the moment. It's when you're looking at something. Mm -hmm. So would you say there's quite clearly a big difference then between, let's say, looking and seeing when it comes to scan? Um, yes, and that, that's, uh, that's uh, both a philosophical question and a methodological question. But for me, you are... I think you can be looking or you can be scanning without seeing what's happening for sure. Uh, I see a lot of young players just turning their heads and they're trying to look, but they're not seeing what is happening. They, they're doing the scan in the right direction at the right time, but they don't see the player pressing them. So they just turn and lose the ball. Uh, and I think also, if you want to be technical, I think for all the... To, to really see something, you probably need to have a fixation on it. So you need to see details. So fixation is looking at something long enough to see details. And it's important that scans, it does not have fixations. Very few scans have fixations. So you're actually looking, uh, but you're not seeing details, but you're gathering in information from the, I used to call a scan like a blurred video. Every time you scan, it's a little blurred video of your environment. It's not detailed, but you're seeing enough. The best scanners are seeing enough to make decisions. So they're seeing the movement of the attacker or the movement of the defender. They're seeing where the space is opening up, but they're not seeing the details. They're not, they're not reading the name on the back of the shirt because the scan is too quick. So um, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult question. Are you looking? Are you seeing? Um, it has many components, actually. It's interesting because you kind of reverse engineer it all and it goes back <laughs> to your, your own playing days. And it's just like, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I suppose we're all predisposed to kind of similar enough youth development structures growing up. So I suppose, I mean, before we tackle your studies, was there anything that sticks out to you pertinently in terms of well, there's a over-reliance here and there's an over-training perhaps of some positional or situational games or it's a mm -hmm. case of we're not playing enough 11 v 11. Mm. Uh, we're not playing enough uh, 
in in every type of way. So every small sided games, uh, eight versus eight, nine versus nine, we're not playing enough. And I think every time they're talking about the Spanish football revolution, they're talking about this. Oh, they start with the rondo so early. But the thing they do that we never did was they start with playing 4v4, 5v5 so early. They're playing the game and the the training is games, games, games. And they're understanding spaces when they're seven and eight years old. We never did that. We did passing exercises from A to B to learn how to control with the inside of the foot, without to play with the outside of the foot. We we had scoring training with uh, we have to finish in that corner and that corner without the goalkeeper and without opponents. So we're we're just learning the technique, but we're not learning the skill. And I think that's a very normal thing to do. That's the that's the linear pedagogy that you have to learn all the techniques and then you can put it into a game. But what the Spanish have told us and shown us and what I feel now that the entire football community knows is that you can start practicing these techniques in and skills at simultaneously yeah and for me it, it gets back to the intentionality piece about it in terms of it seems to be less about what we train and more as to how we train it how we coach it it's mm. like even nowadays in 21st century i mean if it wasn't before already but like Coaching and training and attention is such a huge fulcrum in all of this too. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I, I think you can you can have the perfect exercises, but if you coach it wrong, it becomes wrong. It becomes mislearning or or bad learning. Or you can have um you can just play the game and you can have perfect coaching at the right time. And the uh, so and but for me it's all about practice design. So I believe that if you use a lot of time always thinking about the exercise design, the practice design, and you're putting players into these problem-solving situations that are specific for their position or their development, they will make the correct mistakes and they will make the uh, correct solutions and they will, they will get 100 repetitions each week in the same spaces and they will learn. It's impossible not to learn in that type of environment. Yeah, it's really interesting to speak about designing different training environments to vary returns in your coaching because, in fact, there was something Arsene Wenger, I don't know if you read his recent interview with Miguel Delaney in The, in the Independent, absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll attach it in the show notes below. But, I mean, in light of this context, Carol, I mean, Wenger speaks about, quote, Football is conquering the world at an unstoppable speed. And at the moment, there's a dysfunction between the audience and practice in some countries, end quote. I mean, would you agree or strongly agree with that statement? <laughs> I think it's interesting that it's Wenger because so one of our projects were with, it, it's not a, if you read if you read the, the research paper, you understand very quickly which Premier League club we're talking about. And that was the, that was the last season of Arsene Wenger in Arsenal, where we did this scanning study. And he was very fascinated uh, on the subject. So he invited uh, Guy and us over to do this full season study on scanning on Arsenal players. So, so he has always been ahead of time. He wanted to know what's the new big thing. Where can we, 
where can we make the next big uh, step? Uh, so, uh, and I think he was, he was very enticed by this. Can can our players become the best scanners? Um, can, because we want to play quicker football uh, in less space. So, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting too. I mean, like he really is. <laughs> He's really one of the founding fathers, you would say, of the modern game. Arsene Wenger, you know, and he's inspired an awful lot of people, such as yourself, mentoring mm -hmm. them, advocating them, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, like what you're doing for the current generator or current cohort of coaches too, Carol. But I suppose, I mean, tackling any sort of PhD, no less in a subject matter that you're actually really extremely interested in too. I mean, it's no small feat. So I suppose what were the cues that uh, you that were signposted to you earlier on that you know what this is going to be a long arduous journey of three four years to PhD that you were study that you uh, ended up compiling on visual perception elite football. Mm -hmm. uh, in Norway, a PhD is four years, so and twenty five percent of this uh, that is teaching is mandatory teaching. So of course, <laughs> when you dive into something like that. I had to put some of my coaching on hold because it's too much because it's it's time consuming. But I did some coaching at the size as well. Uh, but it's it's uh, you just you just dive in completely into that subject and you just do. I don't know how many thousand uh, game situations I've looked at. I count just counted scans from players in different clubs around the world. Um, so of course, when I watch a match right now, I'm, I'm damaged. I'm I'm looking immediately on the midfielders in the Premier League. Uh, is this a good scanner? Is this a bad scanner? Um, I think you, uh, doing a PhD, I will I will not recommend it. It's mm -hmm. it's tough. It's hard. It's it can be a tough. I did it in the Corona, the COVID period as well. So I had two two years just on my small apartment alone. Um, it becomes isolated. It's tough, and um, but luckily after the third year, my my research start started coming out, and I actually had four peer reviewed pub uh, papers published when I did my defense, and that's quite rare. And I, I'm very happy with my papers. Um, so. Now I'm very satisfied that I did a PhD, but during I uh, I had a lot of doubts, <laughs> and I uh, yeah because I had I had offers to go into full time coaching at the same time, but I decided to do the PhD. So yeah, yeah. but at the same in the same breath too, like acknowledging that it was you know a, a stressful, a strenuous time as well. You know, oh. doing a PhD for that period of time, you know, turning down full time job offers. But obviously, the merits of the work are still visible today and still very much tangible. And yeah, and I think, yeah, sorry. Uh, I just, for me now, it's, I'm getting, I'm getting contacted from different clubs around the world and I can go there and visit and get inspiration and show them. So, so I get, a, because of my work in the PhD, has gotten me some fantastic contacts around the world and, uh, which gives me the inspiration I need. I need these trips, the three or four trips each year where I can visit the best environments uh, in the world. And uh, I'm lucky to have that position based on my PhD. So, 
interesting too, right? Because football's the source of all innovation. And undoubtedly, without playing the game, without coaching the game, you wouldn't have been that little bit more inspired to conduct a PhD on visual perception. I mean, is it rudimentary to say or whatnot, but to suggest that in the future, perhaps all football clubs should have at least one to two dedicated people, dedicated personnel that are working and conducting their own PhD inside clubs, because I find the learnings in session and the learnings post-publishing would be of fundamental value to any club. Mm, I agree completely. And I feel like this is happening for sure. Uh, I was I was visiting Southampton uh, this year, uh, the academy there, and there was PhD students, there were master students working in the academy. I'm visiting Ajax uh, in the this month in the uh, yeah the late later this month, and they have uh, PhD projects going on decision making and VR, and so I I just feel like I know a lot of clubs that have full-time PhD students, they have a lot of master students and they're, they're understanding the importance of doing in-house studies, in-house research, uh, because they want to find the next big thing, you know, or everyone wants to have that competitive advantage. And maybe that is VR or maybe that is uh, eye tracking or, or maybe that is some cognitive uh, testing. We don't know. But, uh, but I know that a lot of clubs are using a lot of money to find the next big thing. And uh, a part of that is hiring master students, PhD researchers to do in-house studies. You know, one of the huge advantages, I would say, of the 21st century when it comes to football is I've seen, I mean, contrary to popular belief, I'll, I'll divulge now, but this concept of football socialists you know, people putting out ideas there into the football universe and ecosystem that's great and has advantages for the entire benefit of the entire community, footballing community. So there's something there about share about going doing your deep work, sharing your deep work and iterating it upon. Because without doubt, I don't believe this PhD would have been possible without the collaboration of countless other clubs and organizations, Carol. True. And yeah, I collaborated with that uh, yeah, Arsenal and we collaborated with UEFA because we did a lot of studies in the European Championships and, and different clubs in Norway as well, top uh, elite clubs in Norway. So yes, because this is a topic that fascinates the football world. And uh, yeah, so when I every time I put out something on scanning, it's uh, uh, people get fascinated all around the world. That's why I love Twitter to use that. Uh, when I did my trial, when I put out a thread on my trial lecture on uh, why rondos are not the best uh, uh, football exercise, it, it created maybe almost a chaos or at least a very massive and quite volatile discussion on, <laughs> okay, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And, uh, and yeah, so, so I, I just love to share this and then I... And it's not like I have the correct answer or this is the only way to do things. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I believe in this. Uh, I have a background and I have uh, both from academia and practical where I can say that, okay, I believe this works based on evidence and practical application. But I'm I'm so open for new ideas and learning. And I, I use Twitter both to uh, be 
come in contact with others, but also to get inspiration. So mostly to get inspiration from others. Absolutely fascinating. And indeed, the piece on the Rondos we'll touch upon shortly. But I suppose getting into the nitty gritty piece about the PhD, Carol, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating for me to read about on an article with FIFA, how quite prominent 2018 was a year for you mm. and your thesis with respect mm. to the U17 and U19 European Championships. Mm. At the same time, we did the Arsenal study. And <laughs> so we, we gathered a lot of information that year and then we used the next couple of years to write these out. Um uh, yeah, I, I spent, I think the under 17 European Championship was in England. So I spent three or four weeks in England just uh, traveling from Loughborough to, uh, I don't remember all that. I think I had a base in Loughborough because I went one year in a university there. But then I went around the entire England and watched games and filmed games. And I did the same the same year in Finland for the under 19 European Championship. So I had a base and then we just went, I just went to the different stadiums and I had my camera and I just filmed the matches the way I had to fill them to get the, the perfect scanning analysis. Yeah. So uh, 2018 was a crazy travel year for me. Yeah. And I mean, from conducting such thorough research, particularly focusing on the 17s and 19s, European Championships. What were some of the seminal findings that emanated from your research? I think for that study, the the big thing was that the under nineteen players are scanning at the same rate, same uh, same frequency, in the similar positions to elite players like Arsenal players. So there was no difference, but the big difference was between the under seventeen and the under nineteen. So. Under 19 players, they scanned significantly significantly more than under 17 players. And then we have to think about what, what causes this. And for me, it was under 17 players were top academy players in the best clubs. But the under 19 players, they were professional players playing in the top five leagues. So there seems to be like some sort of something is happening in that age group. So they need to scan more perhaps to reach the next level or the football goes, uh, the football is so much faster between the academy and the um, senior uh, top five leagues that we have to scan more. There's something happening there. And that I think is very important for uh, for player development. We have to make players ready to scan at the same rate that the professional players are doing. And uh, the under-17 players are not doing it. So so something is needs to happen there. And we can, I believe we can influence it earlier on because, yeah. And obviously armed with this, con armed with this finding, I mean, mm. in your current role, you are U19's coach mm. for a club in Norway. I mean, how is that impacting, for example, the coaching and the behaviors of the U15s, U17s below U19 age groups? I think that depends on on the coach. And I, uh, it's not like because I focus a lot on it in my group that the other are doing the same. So some, I think they get some influence from it, but it's not like a, it's not systematic in the club. It's not like uh, this is a focus point inside the club. But of course, when when they hire someone like me, 
then of course the daily talk is about these things and uh, they are seeing that the players from my group that are making the last step to the first team and becoming professional they are actually doing this because they have become better scanners mm. so the last two players from my group who was promoted to the first team and has for the first time become underage national team players in Norway they became they took the last step because they got a perfect last scan the timing of the last scan be became perfection for both those players they are attacking players they're playing between the lines a lot so this skill is very important for them and they from one of them never scanned in the, during the last pass before i started working with him now he does that perfectly every time so and then with his skill set his dribbling ability he's it's by far the the biggest skill set i worked with of course now he has the time so he he knows every time he can turn and face the defender he knows when he has to play one touch back because now he always scans during the last pass so i i think just by having these examples then of course the entire club is focusing more on it but i can't say that uh it's uh, it's not systematic it's not written down by the club it's uh, it's personal dependent it's personal dependent hmm. and i mean speaking about personal dependence is it a case of would you recommend that scanning perhaps on an individual basis be caught um sorry scanning in that context be coached in an individual context or does it always have to be with groups of players uh, uh to answer that no it does not always have to be with a group of players um some of the best scanners in the club in the first team has never thought about the scanning but they're just they just had it from when they were 11 12 year old just playing with older kids they just had to adapt and that's why you're all often seeing that the smallest uh maybe weakest central midfielders they're the best scanners because they're always played with uh, tougher or higher or more physical opponents and they had to be so quick in their decision making not to be tackled so they're always the best scanners, like Savi or Andrea Pirlo or the, the small guys. Phil Foden is a fantastic scanner. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I I have some players that are really bad at scanning. So maybe I do some group exercises with just three or four of them. Uh, when there's some new players that are coming up to my group, then we're doing some I'm doing some extra work with those guys away from the team training. I have a lot of different exercises that we can use, but the most important for me with every team is to talk about it, show them clips where they're scanning and then performing and where they're not scanning and then performing badly. Um, so for me, it's I always say to coaches, yes, you can have the most fancy exercises in the world, but if you're just focusing on it, showing them clips and playing very functional exercises in training, then the players will become better scanners. And then you just have to coach it uh, during play. Okay. Uh, like, uh, Paul, did you scan in that 
when you received the ball? Did you scan before you received it? Just during play, uh, did you see the run of the right uh, winger? Um, so just talking about it, focusing on it, and then watching video clips. I think um, you have to watch video with the players uh, because they're so they love to see themselves, and they're for some this is the key to understand. Uh, it's often the video that makes the them understand the importance but then then they need to practice it in the games on the pitch but they often need to see themselves from a bird's eye view uh, to really understand that they're not scanning particularly well hmm. and going back to the 17th and 19th research i mean was there a huge discrepancy per position perhaps yeah it always is. And then I found that I did my master's uh, thesis on Ajax Academy players. And uh, and so we have like the numbers for a central midfielder when you are 15 and then 17 and then 19. And, and we always uh, see that the central midfielders are scanning the most. And then strikers are always scanning the least. And then I think it's uh, central defenders is always number two, followed by uh, uh, wingers, fullbacks, and then strikers. Or is or is it fullbacks or strikers? But it's always the same. It doesn't uh, matter if it's under 17, under 19, uh, first team in the Premier League. It's the same differences between positions. So we just know that. So the 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 demands of a central midfielder in terms of scanning is so much higher than the demands of a winger or a fullback or a striker. We know that. Fascinating. And I mean, in total, defending your thesis, you conducted four papers. Yes. I mean, how did the findings begin to evolve from paper to paper? Were they as expected? Oh, uh I don't think I think uh, my research was it was very important for me that all my research going into the project was uh, novel. It's never been done before. So I did all my research in 11 versus 11. For instance, I did the first ever eye tracking study on a football match 11 versus 11. So we didn't know what we were going to find. So so it was only yes, we had some hypotheses for some of the papers especially the scanning papers because that had been done before at uh, at some degree uh, but I would say that uh, the most surprising was perhaps the big difference between positions maybe um, what was surprising but very gladly was that in all the studies we see that higher scan rates means higher pass completion. And we find that for every study we conducted, higher scanning means higher pass completion. So before you receive the ball, in the 10 seconds leading up to receiving the ball. And I, so that was that, that was fascinating. But the most surprising finding was that only 2 or 3% of scans involves a fixation. That I, I talked about it earlier, but that just in practice, it means that when in a player... Uh, is playing and scanning he is not seeing details he is seeing colors and movements that's it because a scan is so quick mm. i mean like the implications that has for even coaching many programs at u6 u7 is absolutely cute huge like colors and movements alone yeah i changed my because i i coach young players 
uh, with very um, isolated exercises. And I know we always had this thousand touch uh, warm up. Um, and I, where I held up uh, fingers in the air, like two fingers, three fingers, and they had to dribble the ball as quickly as they could. And they had to remember or add these numbers and just scan for these numbers. And then that's completely the wrong way to learn this because a scan is not supposed, you're not supposed to read if it's two or three. You're only supposed to see colors and movements because once you've seen that I am holding up three fingers, we know that you are doing a fixation, which means that the scan is too long. You're scanning for a too long period of time. Hmm. So could I changed you, I changed everything. Could you give me a practical example as to how you changed? Yeah, for instance, instead of then showing fingers, I started while still working with only three players. Maybe I played a pass to a player. I had two players standing behind him. Uh, if it was a red color player that was uh, closest to him, once I played the pass and he scanned, he had to play the ball back. But if it was a blue player that was in front, then he could turn and play a pass to him and get the ball back. So now we're scanning for actual colors and movement of players. And then I know that because uh, the pass from me is only 10 meters and I only allow him one second to do the scan, then I know that he has to scan quickly. Uh, so, so I'm forcing him based on my findings. I'm forcing him to scan like a Premier League player. And I mean, obviously you touch upon it there. You got a little bit of backlash for a, a Twitter post about why coaches need to fall out of love with Rondos. I mean, November of last year, I mean, defending your PhD, you're actually given that exact assignment. Why coaches need to fall out in love with Rondos. Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, I got it from the the two um, person who are questioning your, you in your defense. It's a, it's a nerve wracking experience. Um, and I think you get something like uh, one week or two weeks to prepare that uh, trial lecture. Uh, and they got, <laughs> I love the assignment. I think it was very original. And it was based on a quote I had from my PhD. So I actually said in my PhD that coaches should fall out of love with rondos. And then they made this assignment. And um, so I just attacked the assignment, looking, it from, uh, looking at it from a, a motor learning, motor perceptual learning standpoint and, uh, and, and different things like scanning, creativity, um, how do people learn, um, specific, specificity, transferability. So I just looked at it from all those angles. And... It's important for me to to show that this is just I could I could have done this with a, a passing exercise I could have done this with a small sided game, but the assignment was a rondo, mm. so so I could have done it uh, the, the the same ways. But um, by doing this, I find I I started finding uh, some deficiencies with the rondo, um, and then based on my thinking that every minute we have on the pitch counts to making the players as good as they can be. Um, my the, the time we have on the pitch for me is so essential. So are we wasting some of the time with just automatically doing 15 minutes rondo each training? Because I know a lot of coaches are just doing that. They just have this 
uh, we need to do a warm-up and then we need to do a passing exercise and then we need to do some sort of rondo or positional game and then we can work on some aspect of our game model for instance uh, i'm just questioning could we start working with the actual game model from the very first minute after we do our warm-up and in the two years i've been here now we're doing exactly that we're doing the warm-up and then we're just immediately starting to work on the game uh it doesn't matter if we have 12 players or 22 players i'm designing exercises that they are meeting in the match from the very first moment after the warm-up i mean just judging alone from the rebukes that you were getting online via twitter did it highlight to you perhaps that there is an awful deficiency in terms of coaching practice and coaching circles of not being able to logically think perhaps from a first principles based approach? I think that the, the, the love of rondos is just, it's just a cultural thing. It's based on the assumption that the Barcelona of Pep Guardiola became as good as they became based on the rondo because Pep Guardiola was talking about the rondo and Johan Cruyff has been talking about the rondo and Xavi has been talking about the rondo. And I just think that automatically people or coaches have thought that, okay, then this has to be the magical exercise because we're doing so many passes and we're doing, and we're working on the body position all the time. And it's just a perfect exercise to work on both feet and, uh, and working on passing. Um, and then when you actually look at the exercise, I, I think I I used an example. It's called, I think you can YouTube it. It's amazing FC Barcelona training or something on YouTube. It has a million views. But then you're just seeing Xavi, Iniesta and Messi. They're just standing in this uh, six versus two rondo. And they're not they're not performing any passes in the same way that they're doing in a match. It's not similar at all. There's no scanning there's no adjusting the body position. It's 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 no passes over eight meters. And how often do you play passes under eight meters in a game? Very, very few passes. So 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 what are you actually watching? You're watching these group of guys having fun with the ball. It's just a fun social exercise. They're not becoming any better. They're just doing it for the fun and social thing. It's it's fun. I, I always say the best argument for doing a rondo in a training is because the players love it. It's fun. It's they it receives laughter. Um, that's the best argument. If you want to talk about football development, skill development, uh, skill adaptation, you cannot say that rondo is a good exercise or the best exercise. It's 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 not possible. And in terms of being really intentional about our training, I mean, you argued there's no better place to begin than the game model. And mm. indeed, I mean, you're very quite open on Twitter now sharing details and facets about your game model, which I'd implore everyone to look at because it is quite very insightful, concise info as well and equally fascinating. But I mean, I suppose you've trained your senses now over these past few years, you know, at adapting and sense-making of the smallest detailed changes. And, you know, as football becomes a game of less time, less space, it's also mm -hmm. coincided with this rise of relationism, of which you're a big fan. I mean, in fact, I've seen from the clips that you've been putting up recently, you have been incorporating these escadinas. Yeah. To mean, like, ladders into training. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we actually had the game yesterday where where it suddenly emerged this perfect Escadinha uh, in the defense midfield channel of the opponent. And it's just lovely when the middle player in the, the Escadinha is just jumping over the ball uh, without thinking. I, I, don't, I don't think he would have done that maybe two months ago, but now he just does it. And just by doing that, he confuses the entire defense and it becomes two two passes uh, later. It becomes a, a very good chance for us. So uh, this is like this is another example of how I can get inspired by Twitter because I just read Jamie Hamilton's piece on on relationism, and for me it was wow. This is something. It's something we have been doing, but it, these concepts is entirely new for me. And then I just started talking with my players on these concepts. I show them some tabelas and some escadinhas, and they just, yeah, we're doing this, but I didn't know that they had an, a name. And now they're talking in the training of, oh, for this game, I, we, we should create more escadinhas. <laughs> we should uh, we should do that. And I think that's just, uh, I love that. And I, I, think the, I think the biggest misconception on me from some people is that you cannot have this extreme thorough game model and still be a supporter relationism because thing i i know that i'm a big fan of the constraints led approach and non-linear pedagogy but some of the most fanatic in that area are saying you cannot have a very thorough game model because that limits creativity and that uh, then you're not you're not opening for creative solutions. For me, it's uh, the complete opposite because I know I I think that the game model makes me aware what I want to see from my team, but I never tell a player what decision to make in a situation. Never ever. We're talking about concepts and we're moving players here and there and we're talking about spaces and we're talking about can you pass through, around, over, or onto an opponent. And just by having these players practicing in this environment day in, day out, it creates solutions that I would never have thought of myself. Uh, but but you're still seeing, when my team is playing, you're seeing the game model 100%, but you're seeing a lot of solutions, a lot of patterns that I have never thought about, which they are just creating among themselves inside the principles that we have so it's a combination of a game model and relationism in perfect uh, harmony in my opinion yeah i mean you speak about harmony there and it's interesting because having a structure does breed that creativity and for that creativity come to life it seems as though the escadinia or something of that effect with respect to relationism seems the most kind of efficient way of bringing that across for me, it certainly looks, when I see this happen in games, just because you don't have a term or a reference to be able to describe, it doesn't mean it's beyond your knowledge. No, no. It's very much a case of this is football at its true essence, just in flow. Mm. I, I just think that we haven't, that's, for me, football is fascinating because we're never seeing the same attack twice. And that's what I love. And that's why principles are so important. So the players know some of the things we want to achieve, 
some positional superiorities or overloads in some situation, but then their solutions are new every time. And that's that's the beauty of football. I think you're always surprised. You're never seeing the exact same goal being scored. And that's, that's for me, the difference between uh, football or American football or basketball, where you're seeing these exact same patterns again and again and again. But football or soccer, or you're never ever seeing the same goal being scored. Still, after millions and millions and billions of goals, you're not seeing the same goal. And I love that. Fascinating one. It's so simple, but like when you hang on to that, like it just, yeah, I'm getting multiple pop ups now spinning from that. <laughs> and look, I mean, Carol, I mean, you're obviously still an avid student of the game. I don't know if you'll be doing a second PhD anytime soon, but I mean, <laughs> with, that, with that being said, I mean, what's one key thing you're researching now or that you're studying that you see boiling beneath the surface of football that you believe will be a key feature of any youth development pathway over the coming decade? Mm. Uh so when I finished my PhD and uh, it was always my plan to go into full-time coaching because all my ambitions is in coaching. Uh, I want to be a head coach at the highest level possible. So uh, I'm not I'm not ever going back to academia and researching a PhD. But of course, now I'm doing more practical research based on my knowledge on scanning. So I'm testing these things out with my players. Uh, right now, I'm working with some elite players in different leagues around the world uh, on what I call a both way scan, which means that during the last pass, you should scan to the right and then to the left and still be able to receive the ball perfectly. I think that will be the next big thing, which gives you a 360 degree awareness every time you receive the ball. So things like that and knowing how important it is to to always turn and facing the opponent's goal when you have the chance. Where I've discussed this with a player and he has been researching the best players in the world. What are Messi and Neymar or, and the best dribblers doing so well? Well, they're always getting the upper hand by turning against the defender. And every time they have the chance. And if the pressure is extremely tight, they take the touch away from the defender and then they look and then they turn always to get the upper hand and then they start dribbling or then they pass or so for me it's just getting players to be extremely good at tight areas under extremely tight pressure uh, I think we will like everyone is talking about De Serbi he's like he can put uh, seven players in the 18 yard box when they start a goal kick I think that will be the new normal not not like a freak coach, that will be the new normal because the players will be skilled enough to receive the ball from a six-meter pass with extreme pressure and still be able to hold him and then have the vision to see a breakthrough pass or can can dribble him off. Or I just think every player uh, in 10 years will become even better in tight areas under tight pressure. I think, you know, obviously being very optimistic throughout this entire show, I mean, it certainly is an exciting frontier of which we're about to embark upon when it comes to football and just even 
I'd implore a lot of people listening to the podcast just to even let that set with you alone. No two attacks are the same. So how can we create many different mini models within our own arsenal, within our own game model? It's going to be fascinating to see how that begins to kind of emerge and evolve. But mm. I mean, I have to say, Carol, I've really thoroughly enjoyed um, speaking with you today on the show. Um, I think what you've given the game back in terms of this first-hand knowledge regarding scanning is very important. I do believe there ought to be a lot more people um, akin to yourself that I would call football socialists uh, giving back to the game because it would be very, very um, unfortunate for that knowledge to remain incubated within a federation or a club and not shared and disposed widely. However, with that being said, I mean, for those people that are even slightly inspired listening to you today and wish to thread a similar path, what would be the one bit of key advice you'd have for them? Um, I think that you have to find something that is, uh, I think, to, to do this for a very long period of time, uh, you have to have this this motivation, uh, this really in, inner motivation. Uh, and for me, it was very early on. I wanted to become the best coach in the world, the best football coach in the world. That was my. It's still my life goal. I, I it's uh, it uh, it hangs over uh, my bed each night, <laughs> a poster of it. And uh, I knew that early on, so I started working on my game model, even though I wasn't coaching. And I, although I'm still just an under nineteen coach for one of the biggest clubs in Norway, but still uh, it's it's a far way to where I want to go. But you need to have that ambition. You need to have that drive. And then you, for me, the way was academia doing, I had to be the one coach in the world who had the PhD. I had to, I had to stand out in a way, but if it's a bachelor's degree or master's or most of my coach, coaching colleagues do, doesn't have any, uh, formal education at all they're just doing the licenses and they're they have this practical knowledge and so i don't think it's you have to find your way you have to find your inner drive and motivation uh and you have to f find what's correct uh what's <laughs> yeah what's best for you for me i, I love to read i love to uh, think about things uh critically so for me academia was a right way to go for others they are more practical then I would start by doing internship uh, for big clubs or just just taking contact with players, so no, with coaches. So now there's a lot of coaches who ask me, can I come and watch training? And of course, I love it. Come, watch trainings, join me. Um, but uh, yeah, take on coaching jobs, get a lot of practical applications and maybe do some courses and some formal education, do what's best for you, but have the inner drive uh, because you need that because it's not always <laughs> uphill uh, in the coaching career. It, uh, it goes very up and down. Yeah. Fantastic. Carl, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Connor. It's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs>